0: Site to Studio episode four. Uh, We've only put out one episode so far. Had a four-month break. Now we're getting back into it. Uh, Derwin, thank you for coming. Um, Could you give a short introduction to the people about who you are and what you do?
1: Okay, my name's Derwin. I've run a business called Custom Industrial. Essentially, we do uh, custom metalwork, architectural metalwork. We do furniture and we're involved in the art world a little bit with some fabrication of sculptures and artists' work and installations of that as well.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, a lot of our viewers might have seen your work on Instagram uh, and maybe thought it was very cool and uh, and you've built up quite a bit of a following there as well. Uh, so, again, thank you so much for coming and <laughs> um, hope we have a good chat today. Yeah. So... I. I guess the natural place to start is to understand how you got into metalworking.
2: Um,
1: it was a it was a desire to start to weld, and that was probably about ten or twelve years ago. I'd only done a little bit of arc welding or stick welding on site previously. I was a uh, carpenter builder, mm-hmm. so I'd been building houses for a long time, and there was yep. always a need to sort of weld a tab on here or there. And I was pretty keen to put my hand up and. Have a crack at it, yeah. even though I couldn't weld. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, and then when I started custom industrial, I I wanted to learn to TIG weld. Right. So, um And the desire to sort of leave welds exposed on some of the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there was a need to sort of hone that skill and practice it and get it to a point where I was comfortable with it, where I could leave an exposed weld on a job. So that's, that took a while sort of to, you know, develop that skill mm-hmm. and, um, you know, ended up when I started Custom Industrial I bought a MIG welder and a TIG welder mm-hmm. and I didn't even know how to set them up. Yeah. And um, I had a friend of mine who was kind of a general fabrication and machining wizard and he came and set up my TIG welder for me and gave me a few tips and then I used to pay him to... Um, weld on the furniture in my workshop so i could sort of learn off him so so i don't know if that answered your question so you
0: you've only been doing this for 10 12 years that the metal working so
1: no less than that the um probably i started custom industrial in 2014 right and i started welding on those jobs too so it was pretty much just self-taught and you know developing those skills and just stuffing a lot of stuff up and redoing it and figuring out how to do it um, and attacking it that way. So I've never done an apprenticeship in that. I put myself through an apprenticeship. So when right. I when I started to get practice the TIG welding, right. I, I committed to doing a year, an hour every day for a year before I started any other work for the day. So I get up really early, go into, go into my workshop and I just practice on scrap bits of metal. TIG welding for an hour, an hour and a half. And then I saw there was a course in America. It was a two-day course run by a guy there called Brian Fuller and Mark Prosser. And um, they build sort of cars and motorbikes and things. And they offered a TIG welding course. And it was a one-day course for metal and a one-day for aluminium. And I'd never really studied the science behind it. But I figured there was nothing else in Australia where I could go and learn you know, in a day, like do a one-day course, nothing yep. I could find anyway. So I bit the bullet and flew over to Atlanta for a week and did the two days and it was awesome, you know. Like they were kind of questioning why I was there because I'd been practising for a year but I didn't understand all the technical stuff no. behind it and they gave me that data and formed a pretty good friendship with Mark, who's a full-time welding instructor in Wisconsin. And he just said to me, he said, look, anytime you got a question send me an email
2: mm.
1: and uh, he goes you got me for life so he goes you come from melbourne to atlanta for a day or two days so we'll um you know i'll commit to you so when i came back to melbourne i i did that when i needed to i could send him a photo and ask him you know this is what i'm doing what you know i know it's not right mm. what am i doing that's wrong and he'd tell me and yeah went from there i could make the adjustment straight away so i committed to another year um, of practicing before I'd leave any sort of exposed TIG welds on or on my work you know before I was happy to with my quality so right
0: yeah. so for me that's quite incredible to hear that you've only been in this particular trade for less than 10 years hmm. uh, I mean looking at uh, your Instagram I would assume uh, this guy looks like an older gentleman who has been doing this 20, 30 going on 40 years maybe even uh no you're not that old 20 30 years um (laughs) so it's quite incredible to hear the uh the shift that happened in your career and how quickly you uh picked it up and have really risen to the top uh, dare i say i mean you you probably wouldn't necessarily agree
1: i still don't call myself a welder uh don't doesn't sit comfortable with me i would i only just got used to calling myself a fabricator, so it's kind of what I fill out when, when we're out allowed to travel. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's interesting because everyone calls me the metal guy and I was the timber guy for 20, 25 years plus. So um, I learned all those skills then. So I saw it as something that was fairly transferable over to metal. Mm-hmm. Um and it was just a few technical things I had to pick up, a few hand skills and stuff. Um, and I think by committing to that, um, it, it came along pretty quick. And it was a desire to want to do it, you know. Like, I've met a lot of people who like, I really want to learn to tig weld. And I'm like, cool, just do it, you know. And it's like anything, if you're not going to have a crack at it, then you're never going to get good at it. You're going to be pretty average for a while. And I was, I was terrible for a while um you get frustrated at why you couldn't why it wouldn't click and stuff but you know i just sort of see personally it's metal work is just now the material i kind of use mainly you know i was timber for a long time and you know those skills are transferable so i'm just using steel now or metal or brass so
0: yeah and as a young person where uh, if I may speak broadly, patience is such a rare commodity. Uh, it's really interesting and inspiring to hear how y- you develop the skill by just going at it, sh- keep showing up, keep showing up, and just practicing every single day. And the progression, the speed of the progression really being driven by the passion and the want to to do that. Uh, that's yeah. And then the idea of learning this new skill without going through a proper... Not a prop, uh, without going through a traditional apprenticeship route and still being able to develop the skills that you have. I think that's, that's really cool. I think that's really interesting to hear.
1: Yeah. yeah, look, I'm the most impatient person in the world, Charlie, so it surprises me some days too. But um, it's, um, it's interesting. I'm a little bit, um, you know, when I sort of started out in the building industry, I didn't technically have a traditional apprenticeship in carpentry either, but um, I do learn that way. Like, I learn best when um, I'm watching someone's hands and listening to them explain why they're doing it versus someone writing something on a blackboard or reading the technical aspects out of it, out of a book. Mm-hmm. So, and I guess that's kind of what an apprenticeship is traditionally, is, you know, watching and observing and taking in all that information and then just practising it. So, yeah, but nowadays there's so much information that's available to everyone. You can be kind of a, a YouTube expert in five minutes, which is totally cool as well. It's a different way of learning, but I think it's a good opportunity where you can learn both ways. So it was interesting for me where I didn't have that visually watching too many people, but I was able to bring people in or ask the right questions at the right time you know once you've practiced for a bit so you know It's a, I guess when you start something and it's new you've probably got a thousand questions but you don't know which one to ask first because you don't know where you're at you don't know your position so once you've sort of had a go yourself and figured a few things out then you can kind of ask someone or email someone or get onto a forum and ask a more I guess more educated question so you can sort of jump a couple of levels in your skill as well
0: right yeah I, I think when i'm trying to ask for advice it's i think you're 100 percent correct it's um what are you what's the information you're trying to extract and being uh, more specific about it mm. and making it easier for the other person to right. give you the information that you want yeah yeah.
1: i think it's the fact that you know i get asked a lot how i do things on on the internet and just because i post my work people think i willing to share and I am willing to share with most but if it's just it's interesting you can't tell if it's a question out of laziness you know like how do you do that and it's well it's several years of practice it's you know it's or it's this or it's this method and most people just want to know how you got to the end product so it's if someone asks me something and they're coming at it from a point of view where they've invested some time themselves and I think okay well that's a bit different you know like pretty open to that and willing to share and say well look you know this is what helped me or here's a little tip that you know got me through that section of knowledge or whatever so yeah
0: yeah. i just want to sort of circle back into how you got into this because i thought it'd be a a, a sort of answer that would be stretched over a longer period of time Mm. and because i'm very interested about um, the journey that people Mm. sort of go through could i get an understanding as to how it all started, even in the building game. How did you get into carpentry and then, okay, where um, did that story start?
1: Well, I, I think I had a passion for timber and machinery and steel work when I was really young. The family business is based out on the wharf and it's timber, uh, it's a timber importation and basically it's a trucking business which is still running now, it's in its fourth generation. And that's where I started working out in the wharf in the late 80s, early 90s, just, you know, with my cousins driving trucks and the big forklifts and just big packs of timber like all the Oregon and the Merbau that used to come into Melbourne. We used to work the docks and unload the ships and load the trucks and drive them. And it was being around all that timber and I just loved it, like fresh-cut timber with all the ends were painted and exactly and stacked as high as you could see. You know, when I was a little kid, I remember running around the yard and climbing up the packs of timber. So I've always been around the material, like the cut material ready for building industry, I guess, mm. from a young age, even before I thought I'd want to be a carpenter. And just always liked tinkering mm. when I was a kid, which kind of surprised my parents in a way because Dad was more of a white-collar worker, he's an office worker, and Mum mum's a teacher. Mum was very creative though, so that's probably where I get a lot of my creativity from and she encouraged that and always to make your own thing or customise something you know, you could buy something and then turn it into your own so I guess that's where that has come from for in me and then you know early on when I was in school 15 or 16 I wanted to leave and be do a cabinet makers apprenticeship mm-hmm. and mum wanted me to stay until I was at least 17 or year 11 and then I got hooked in the arts and photography and went on to university for a couple of years before i dropped out and then i went into carpentry so yeah i was probably late into carpentry and um i think it was more about something to do rather than not something to do at that stage and um yeah did a pre-apprenticeship and just started working on building sites and enjoyed it and i enjoyed the carpentry because you're there for the whole job you know you're digging the holes all the footings so you you know you pour in the foundations of the house and then you kind of hand in the keys to the owner at the end so you got to see every stage and that was appealing to me to to be there throughout the whole job rather than just a um a more purposeful trade like a plasterer or a plumber who comes in and just does one thing um and yeah just did that for many many years and started making furniture in my spare time when i was probably in my late 20s just tinkering and making pretty basic stuff and I think it took another 10 years to you know have a crack at it myself so I was a, on, on a building site till I was about 39 or something mm-hmm. and then I got to 40 and I'm like I really want to have a crack at this I want to have a crack at running my own business basically doing furniture and I didn't want to get to 50 or 60 and go I wish I'd done it 10 years earlier because I'd already felt like that already. So, um, yeah, I just started started uh, started the business, started making a few things, got some clients early on. It was pretty industrial-based furniture back then. And that's when, you know, the mix of steel started coming into it and I started to educate myself on steel and how I could make it. You know, I wanted to do as much as I could in-house. Right. So that's that yeah. was my approach to, or how I got into carpentry. Uh, Sorry, custom industrial.
0: Yeah. So it was being around the timber and and just Mm. that being, forming part of your identity that Mm. led you into carpentry and then this desire to do something and and not to, and to not regret not doing something you wanted to do Mm. that led you into doing furniture. Uh, And then obviously the the creativity from your mother and Mm. the idea of um, uh, wanting to, to, to bring something of your own to life and the running the business that then led you into custom industrial. Yeah. And then with the uh, natural growth and demand for metalworking as mm. part of the, your scopes, mm. that's where you really dove into what you do now.
1: Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I, I can put it down to one thing that I was commissioned to make probably in late 2015, which was you know, a metal screen or a bladed screen and it was pretty architectural. It's a really good friend and client and I still do a lot of work for now. Um, And, um, yeah, I started sort of posting photos of that and I think it got noticed by a few people, a few builders or a few architects or designers in what I was doing. I started to get a bit more of a following there and it was was a real step up for me in skills. I had to learn a lot in that and it was um, involved metal finishing and engineering and you know machining Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff so i really kind of cut my own path with that as well and um and then a lot of the work from the building industry started to sort of come with that and it was less and less furniture which was interesting but it was it was good as well so
0: well i think just looking at the work that you do what you the way I see it is you're solving a diff a very difficult problem in a lot of this custom metalworking hmm. uh, scope it's it's you know I imagine it's very difficult to procure um and you make it easy for them because you centralize the information you centralize the skills to be able to do it and and you solve that problem I think that's that's how I see it and uh, in the architectural building game there's uh, naturally, more money in the market than say in uh, one-off custom furniture pieces. So I can I can see how that's um, happened and how that's very appealing.
1: Yeah, for sure. It Definitely, uh, as a commercial aspect to the business, it um, it pays a lot better than doing one-off
0: custom side pieces, tables,
1: side tables yeah. or whatever. So, and I still like to do that. And, and it was a it was a decision this year to. Um, you know dedicate some time to making my, a few more of my own things and getting back to that furniture and actually you know directing a lot of the skill I've achieved in the last couple of years and like okay now I know I can do this and this is different it's just opened up so many more avenues for me to be able to do more out there stuff um, and I think you're right too like I was chatting to a friend of mine who used to work together in the building industry we'll project manage together at project managers together um at the same company and um i think the back my background in building and carpentry and being a project manager and understanding a job architecturally and you know what an architect's intent was and what the client's trying to achieve and then putting that into metalwork and metal fabrication um i thought was pretty unique and my friend reminded me a couple of years he said no it's like really unique like there's not a lot around, or well, he couldn't think of anyone that mm. had my background of how knowledge of how a building went together as a metal fabricator. So it was, was kind of like I had to step aside and think, oh, actually, he's pretty right. So I think that's appealing to a lot of people where, um, as, say, a metal fabricator for an architect to come to me or a builder or a client and know that I understand what the intent is or the design intent or what they're trying to achieve and can actually... Try and produce the majority of it in in metalwork. So, I,
0: I think you hit on a really important point there, which is how do you how does how is the value proposition comp- what is it comprised of, right? And I, I think there's this idea of what well, do you become a specialist in any one particular thing, or do you become more of a generalist in a few things when but when those general skills get pieced together you have a really unique and really valuable proposition um, for the market. I think that's a um, that's a really uh, important... And then once you pair that with the passion for what you do and the willingness to even try to understand, say, an architect's design t- uh, intent, I mean, I can see why it's a, it's a no-brainer for me.
1: Yeah, look... It's interesting, like, a a breadth of knowledge is probably more important than a depth of knowledge, I think, when I was growing up to be really knowledgeable on one topic and just know everything about that and, you know, just go to the full depth of that and understand that was important, you know, like an everybody specialised, whereas now I think if you have a really good understanding of a lot of different things, you can collectively put them together or you can go down an avenue that you probably wouldn't go down before because you understand that oh, I can skip across a few different topics and get a basic understanding mm. and I think that's why I was kind of transferable from timber to steel as well because I, a lot of the skill sets are the same I mean there's some technical stuff with the welding that's totally mm. different but how things go together and you know just the material you're using is just different you know if you've got some skills yeah. in other areas then it's totally transferable so
0: it do you think that also happened because of a shift in the culture where it's no longer demonised to have more than one focus or it's not looked down upon to be more of a generalist?
2: Mm.
0: Just asking as a young person who uh, was is born it, in the 90s. So <laughs> is it looked down? Well, I think Well, uh, my uh, my assumption was that, say, 20, 30 years ago, 40, you know, 40 years ago, that... Um, to be a generalist, as a, you know, was less respectable than being a specialist in in something, or, or was that not the case?
2: Uh,
1: yep. You're probably right. Um, I'm not sure if I felt that way personally, but mm. I'm sure it was. Um, I'm sure it was a thing. You know, mm. like I just remember when I started out, like everything was segmented to different trades on a building site and you know jobs went as long as they did maybe two years whereas now we're trying to build them in 14 months or 12 months and you know when the plaster was on the job there was no one else on the job when the electrician was on the job there was very rarely anyone else maybe the plumber so it was like everyone had the run of the job Whereas now timelines and deadlines and everyone grouping everyone together you're kind of gaining all that knowledge off the other trades so I guess breadth of knowledge comes into it a little bit there. But, I don't know, I was always interested in what the other trades did and I always thought that, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd watch a plaster, or a trailer a ceiling and, you know, I can plaster but I'm not that good at it I don't really like it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting to watch another trade work and, and try and mirror their skill set or make it applicable to what you're doing or having an understanding of that as well. Yeah, And, you know, when I was a young guy asking old guys questions, if you showed half an interest, a genuine interest in what they did, they'd share stuff with you. You know, like there was a genuine... Most people will do that if you show an interest. If you're genuine interest in what they're doing or how they did something, most people will show you or, or tell you. So,
0: Do you find that that's less the case these days? Do you think people are a little more guarded?
1: I think they were. I think everyone's a bit more open now. Okay. Um, I guard some things, but maybe a technique or a finish or something that I've kind of developed myself and, um, you know, I might share it with some people or there's a group There's a group of, like, Insta friends I've got who are other metal workers um, and we share, like, tips on how to do stuff or, and it's not like a basic forum. We'll just ask each other a question or something and we're pretty open with sharing that way and it's a, it's a two-way street, so it's nice. Um yeah, I think in general people are sharing a lot more. People are a lot more open. I think five or six years ago it was pretty secretive.
0: Mm. Well, i i can't um, I can't speak to metalworking because I don't understand because I don't know the value of, say, having a technique. You know, I, I'm not sure what that intellectual property means, say, from a commercial standpoint or from a from an artistry or a trade standpoint. But I, I, for me, certainly I. I sort of want to be able to say even more or share even more, but I feel like I'm restricted sometimes by, um, I guess, how other people play the game or how, how, how things are. Um, so I find that really interesting. So what what is it about, say, sharing how you do a certain black and finish? How, what, what, what is it about that that you or others in the community – Aren't quite fond Aren't too fond of
1: As in not sharing Yeah not
0: sharing Um
1: That's an interesting question I think it I think it depends on In a way who you're sharing it with And I find that difficult to say Because I think well You should be able to share everything with everyone You know But um I don't know, there's a, there's a technique that I've sort of started to do that um, is not, I haven't invented anything. I've just figured out my way of doing it and it's maybe unique in the ways in how, what I can apply it to and how I can apply it. Um, and it's an appealing sort of visual look so everyone kind of like really likes it, you know, and really mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, how do you do it? So I think it's more of a people want to know just out of curiosity, not
0: because they're going to start doing it themselves. Right. So it, it, is there some element in there that's like, it's almost a branding move where it's like, where that that mystery, and if you don't like the word branding, we can say reputation or yeah, whatever. No, okay. um, does that, is it, you know, it's, it's cool to sort of say, you know, this is a technique that we developed and, and, um, and to have that mystery around it is is a is a nice thing, even for the client. It's it's 100%. nice, yeah.
1: I think that's the appeal to it. Uh, you know, I'm using that technique on a job at the moment, and I haven't posted anything about it. We've been doing this job for a year on the side, and there's probably going to be two or three thousand hours worth of my time in it personally mm-hmm. into this stuff. Um, you know, we're documenting it. We still don't want to reveal the technique. Because I think that, for me, Mm. not revealing everything, it's a bit like a magician or a magic trick, you know? Like, you want to keep that air of interest. And I think there's a good example a friend was telling me the other day that uh, Rolls-Royce doesn't tell people how long their cars take to make. They haven't let that known to anyone. I like that. You know? So it's like, oh... It might be six months, it could be eight months, it could be nine months to hand-build one. They don't, they've don't, they never publicly said and they never tell any clients how long it takes to mm. to do it. So oh, I, I think that part of it is interesting, you know. Like, yeah, show what it looks like, show parts of it, show some of the process. But I think the appeal of keeping some things a mystery is, you know, you'll get future enjoyment out of it. If I've made something for you and there's a part of it that... yeah you can look at it and you can see the whole thing but you can't figure it out like once you figure it out like the mystery's gone so it's just becomes
0: something different then yeah, yeah i really different. like that I, I, I really like that perspective it, it reminds me i was talking to cam was on here last week and i was talking to him how i made an instagram post pretty much saying that you know we make mistakes and you know we're not the best and this job turned out really good and there was some there was some backlash. There was a hit to consumer confidence to my clients, yeah. Mm. And I, I, I sort of came around and I thought, you know, you know, who am I to take away the confidence of the client? Who, who am I to take away from that consumer experience? Mm. And maybe I was even virtue signaling a little bit, saying, "Look at how honest I am," or mm. whatever. So I really like that idea of um, it's it's not about necessarily that you don't want to share, or it's not necessarily even about that technique. Mm. But through that, you create a better experience for the client and you're creating a better product. Mm -hmm. I really like that perspective.
1: That's how you make people feel and the experience when they engage with you that I think also, you know, like you you can get a lot of things readily available and, you know, any kind of experience, if you ring up or you want to order something online or you want to speak to someone, you know, how they answer the phone, how they treat you, it's just that's the experience you're going to get you know so i think early on i understood that no matter what industry i'm in i'm in the service industry first Mm. and if i can own that part of you know own that little niche in what i'm doing you know give people good service make them feel good um you know basic stuff it's not difficult to make have let people have a good experience yeah you know turn up on time do what you're going to say you're going to do. Be honest, you know, if you're having trouble with something or you need an extension in time, be honest with people, be mm-hmm. communicative with them and just let them know, you know. And then that's just respected and, there, and there's no – I don't think you can have a backlash when you're like that. You can't – you know, if you, once you own something and you're honest about it, if you make a mistake or, you know, if you're honest with people, then they respect that a lot more,
0: you know? yeah. Yeah, well, f- for me, a, a big part of being honest is about managing my own expectations, yeah. and I don't, I don't want to create this framework for myself where I'm so anxious about delivering on on something. So it's almost to relieve myself of of, of that pressure, you know. Um, but I, I, I think I've turned the corner a little bit on that type of perspective, on that f- idea of full transparency, yeah. um, because. Yeah, because the mystery is a beautiful thing at, at the same time.
1: It's more about being honest with yourself and transparent with yourself than directly with the client. Right. As well. So it probably sounds like it's part of that as well. So
0: yeah, self-judgment is a killer. Mm. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I used to like I I'm someone who used to write, so I always write things out. So sometimes like if I'm, you know, early on or if I'm frustrated with something, I'm like this is me, it's not the client, it's not the experience, it's not the thing i'm trying to make it's me it's like i've got this block that's blocking me or something so i could write it out or you know do something like that where i'm being honest with myself transparent with myself not necessarily with the client they mm-hmm. get the i guess the distilled yeah yeah they get the the um they get the benefit of it mm-hmm. but you don't have to share that with them directly it comes mm-hmm. across in the job just of how you carry yourself so yeah being honest with yourself and
0: i like that yeah what uh what are you thinking about these days in terms of branding and and whatnot is that something that you actively think about
1: definitely um i rebranded the business uh was it a year and a half ago um and shifted more away from the industrial part of it to the more a more architectural branding or a more um, sort of art world branding um, and we changed the side a little bit like that so um, yeah it was good it was time to do it you know to that brand had to catch up with the work because the work came quickly with all the architectural world and um and so forth, so we had to f- it just felt right to rebrand the business you know visually. Um, and yeah, it was um, it was good it was a good thing to do. The people we engaged with were longtime clients of ours, and it was a lot of trust there, so it was for me, it was a good, enjoyable experience to be a client myself and enjoy mm. the process because yeah, I it. I'd learned so much from those guys about experience. So, and they're the ones we're doing the big secretive job for at the moment. So it was nice to sort of sit back and go, okay, I'm I'm being the client, show me all the cool stuff. Yeah. You know, here's my brief. To write a brief was really nice. To write a brief to someone you knew pretty well and trusted and respected um, and write a brief in their language as in, you know, their... Uh, you know their luxury branding, so it was nice to sort of tailor it to suit them. Um, yeah, it was good. It's a good experience.
0: Yeah, I can really relate to the experience. But you know, I love uh, consulting people in my industry. Say, if I'm looking at software suites or whatever, yeah. or if I'm, you know, I've have a, um, i have 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 guys who do creative work for me, and just yeah. sort of giving them a brief on a creative project, and it's a, and it's a, you know, it's an excellent creative outlet as well me in that process I I do want to ask you what is the value of brand identity to you what what is that to you because I think it's something that construction industry businesses don't think about as much um, as say some other sectors well it's more than a logo Mm
2: I think for (laughs)
1: sure it's I guess it's I guess brand identity encapsulates who you are Mm -hmm. um what you're doing and maybe where you're heading as well so it might be something that you're trying to grow into that, you know it's a vision of what you want not necessarily what you're currently doing Um, but yeah like I think it's important but I think um, what you're doing it and how you're doing it is more important than brand identity but I guess essentially that's brand identity as well yeah isn't it interesting it's, yeah and it's and I look at most things, and it's—I think no matter what you're doing and what it comes down to, it's—it's it's a results-based industry as well, like most industries are. So it's—you um, know—you're only as good as your last job, or how you know how you made someone feel on your last job, or the experience, you know, whether it was good or not. That becomes brand identity as well.
0: Yeah. So. Well, I'm—I'm I'm curious as to. So, what are some of the things that you learnt in that branding process, or just to provide some audience, any uh, provide some value to anyone who's listening? What should they be thinking about when they are developing or redeveloping their brand ID? It's mm, a good question. Um, where, what they're trying to
1: achieve, right. as in, as a business, yeah. Um, you know, you know where they're going with that. Know, you know what their intent is with that so yeah. um and whether that rebranding visually needs to how that represents to that so that narrative that yeah. talks to it so um and do your research on who you whether you're rebranding yourself or if you're engaging with a designer or a graphic designer or you know a branding business to you know do your research on them too and and look at their work and what they're doing, and like, oh, they, d- their look and feel is my look and feel too. So, it's you know, if you're pitching something to them for or writing a brief for them, then it's in their wheelhouse or that's in their, you know,
2: yeah,
1: you know, like I wouldn't, you know, if I wanted some architectural joinery, you know, would I go to someone who just does, you know, high volume builds? Mm. Probably not, because they wouldn't know, I wouldn't understand what I'm trying to yeah. do either. So, it's um. I guess do your research on who you're trying to engage with to help you rebrand to and the, and see what yeah. they come up with and what they can bring to the table with, with what you pitch to them
0: as well. Yeah. I, I think that all makes sense. Mm. And uh, so something I also want to ask you about was, you, so that's branding and then your marketing. So you're, uh, from, my, from looking at, say, just your Instagram pre, uh, presence, um, content marketing is a very significant part of your marketing strategy—it looks like the only one. And um, <laughs> I was trying to be generous. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> all right. <laughs> and um, Instagram's good for that. And I think why you excel at it is you're trying to give to the audience. You're trying to provide value to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it's it that comes naturally because uh, it's it's an outlet because you like writing because you like it's it, you know you're passionate about this. Like Cam says, you know, I don't even think about this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not sure whether are you thinking about, you know, how can I provide the most value to the audience in this blog post or is it more for you and people just come to it because they relate? It's, it's essentially more for me. I mean, I understand
1: I've got some kind of an audience mm. or followers and, and people who enjoy what I do. Mm. So I post stuff that I want to post that I like or details that I want to reveal mm. or show to people or mm. and so forth. So you know, and I only really only use Instagram. I have stuff on my website, but I haven't updated it for probably a year, mm. so it probably needs a freshen up with well, current work.
0: But l- luckily, no one's looked at it in a year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because they. Do, that's yeah. they d- I'm not saying you. I'm just saying yeah. websites in general. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's you know it's a digital business card. It's nice. Yeah, it's nice to see that. Oh, he's got a website, so he's legit. <laughs> <laughs> he he has registered that business name, so yeah, um, which is interesting. But um yeah as far as what I post you know on the main feed I try and keep it um, you know bigger projects or details within bigger projects or what I'm currently working on and and I'm pretty selective with that now early on I wasn't but nowadays I'm pretty selective so I may not post on that too often, maybe once a week and I tend to post in my stories on a Sunday more fun stuff and more my view of the world for the week is kind of where I pitch that at so it might be a sequence of photos I've taken throughout the week or little details of things I'm like oh that'll be good for my story so I'll just put that in the yeah in the save album and then for me it keeps it interesting so it's like a my narrative for the week is told visually once a week in my stories in Instagram and then maybe once a week or once a fortnight I post on the main feed which is my main body of work what i'm working on like the bigger projects in the workshop
0: yeah i i'm gonna so something i might push back a little bit on this Mm. idea of reducing volume Mm. um granted you know you've already done such a great job with building a following and community Mm. on the page but i feel like volume and content and the quality of content is a subjective thing Mm -hmm. um Granted, if you take the approach of this is just for me, then by all means, mm. it, not, none of this matters. But I think quality is, is, is subjective and the value that, that that someone might be extracting from that piece of content isn't for anyone to judge. That's, that's for them. Mm. And I don't think reducing the frequency may necessarily align perfectly with your goals for the business. Maybe
1: depends what my goals for the business are I right I, that's, but, um, I, that's without I, knowing that, i yeah. i agree with you and i also because i thought when i like to build instagram following or to build a connection with some type of audience over time you know early on my belief was i've got to post pretty regularly mm-hmm. you know every day this was before the stories were even a thing i think they've only been around for two years maybe right, so i was five Um, well i've only been on instagram maybe five or six years or something so um and my personal values are not necessarily in line with a heavy social media presence at the moment so you know what i'm doing in in other areas of my life like i think instagram's good but i'm also want to be able to put it at an arm's length Mm. if i need to so for me slowing down that regularity of content posting to just my stories weekly and stuff on my main feed when i feel it's worthy i've got lots of stuff like trust me charlie like every four or five days i find a photo and i like get ready to post it and i'm like is that good enough to put on and Mm. i'm pretty critical of that now so i'm like is that just a photo or an image i'm putting out just to put an image out or is it something I'm really happy with that image? Does it show what I've made or what I've created or what I've been a part of to its best? And it, some most of the time it doesn't, so I don't post it now. Right. So that's where I'm coming at with that. But I think depending what your goal or your intent is with your, with your Instagram feed, if it's to gain a lot of followers, then I think you've got to put out a lot of good content And pretty regularly, once or twice a day, depends what your goal is. You know, mine's not to have a heap of heap of followers. It's to have people who, you know, can appreciate my work. You know, an Instagram family where I can share knowledge equally with other makers and appreciate things. So, so that's my kind of deal with Instagram or social media or Mm -hmm. putting my work out in the public domain. It's an easy format to do it, but I'm also just wary of the, all the social aspects of it too. So yeah. it's interesting now, I, the other side of it.
0: Totally agree with you. Like, I mean, I recently turned off notifications on my phone so I don't get any buzzes or rings or anything mm. apart from phone calls. So And, and so I, I, I totally understand where mm. you're going mm. with that, um, especially as a young guy who's grown up with it, right? Mm. Uh, so I can, yeah, I, I really, I really respect that, yeah. What about um, sort of? So you, you know, you've gone from carpentry to furniture mm. to industrial furniture to architectural metalwork, and now allowing more time for furniture and those mm. smaller custom pieces that may not make as much sense on the balance sheet perspective. Mm. So where, where is everything heading? you what are your aspirations
1: um to lock myself in a shed and just make stuff for myself i don't know how i'm going to do that i mean i know i can do it but whether i can sustain paying bills and um things like that are uh, yet to be seen but um so i'll kind of like keep the status quo with with work that comes in and just trying to balance that a bit more out where you know the commercial stuff is really good financially, and it's it's good branding-wise, and it's good. You know, allows me to um, you know explore a lot of possibilities with work. So it's it's good financially for the business too to have that work, but it also allows me to do smaller, more meaningful projects that don't have a big budget that I would probably invest more of my time in than I would with you know, a commercial project Mm -hmm. uh, and get a lot less money for it. But it interests me or I want to do it or the person I'm engaging with couldn't normally afford to do that. So that allows, you know, the commercial aspect of that business allows me to give back in a way where I can. And I've done a lot of that this year, especially with COVID, with friends, with businesses and, you know, who haven't been fortunate enough to be able to work through COVID um, and totally shut down. So I've been able to do things for them um so probably a little bit less commercial but enough to keep the other stuff going is where i'm heading and to have one decent side project of my own furniture or an exploration of material going in the background consistently so that's yeah. kind of where i made a conscious decision this year to be to back a little bit off the commercial stuff and you know dedicate chunks of time to myself to either relearn a new skill or hone a current skill and do some projects for myself just for just for doing them to see if I can and, yeah. and see what comes of it from that. I mean, ideally, I'd like to be back doing, you know, um, furniture and interesting objects, whether they're commissioned or I'm just... You know, ideally, I'd just like to be making things and then sell them at the end. This is what I'm making at the moment.
2: Mm.
1: It might be a chair, it might be sculpture, it might be something interesting or weird, or it might be a might be a motorbike. I don't know. You know, mm. like so, I can just make it, and if someone wants to buy it at the end,
0: great. I think one pathway to locking yourself in the shed mm. and making stuff is to continually build the brand and pivot mm. off and leverage off the brand to be able mm. to create revenue from other sources mm. you know uh, perhaps something like selling uh custom pieces for exo- exo- ex- i can't say the word a lot of money um, <laughs> exorbitant ex- exorbitant lo- uh, amounts of money perhaps mm. does that doesn't align with your personal value structure mm. so, but there are other ways i'm, I'm sure that you could so maybe that's that is one pathway. And then, mm. since you like, you enjoy documenting and writing and whatnot, mm. maybe creating content for those passion projects mm. and building brand, leveraging off that to build brand and build following. And maybe that's one way to get to the shed.
1: Uh. <laughs> oh, mentally, I'm in the shed already. You know, okay. like I'm already there. So, yeah. you know, there'll be a big shift towards that in the next couple of years, uh, physically. Um, as in moving locations hopefully um and you know living the lifestyle i want to live Mm. you know which is a bit more self-sufficient on the land and um you know i don't have a well just lowering overheads in general if i can and um yeah just be content with that yeah you know so and I'm a guy that gets bored pretty quickly I don't like building the same thing twice so if someone comes to me and they've got hey we want to build 50 of these I'm like it has to be pretty interesting like this secret project I'm doing I'm doing it okay. is repetitious but the narrative and the story behind it like we are always debating of how many of these things we're going to make and um, the number that we set it on is really high and um, physically it's going to like physically with what I have to do with the work um, as like as a fabricator point of view it's going to annihilate parts of my body as in like it's physically demanding on me so Mm. I know I have to commit to it but you know it's a run of X amount and I think the concept behind the amount we're doing is perfect so it has to be done you know so um that's kind of interesting to me so i just think when projects i always want to i guess when with i guess the brand's always evolving like my work's always evolving so whether i have to build it or not or just be me and this is what i'm doing mm. now maybe that's the brand and maybe that's what's the appealing thing whereas someone can come to me and be like you know like like I was saying before, if you're pitching, you know, visually what you want your brand to be to a to a graphic designer, you want to bring something that challenges them, but is kind of in line with their principles. So, if someone brings something to me that's like left the field and I've never done it before, and it's really interesting, then I'd rather take that job on than the one that pays mm. to keep me comfortable for six months. But the interest in the job's more appealing to me than the money in the job. Yeah. Don't get me wrong That like, money's nice like you've got to have it to ducati baby so well, there you go yeah you've got it wow well, you've got to work hard for it but yeah um you know that was an interesting story that was a two-year goal you know the I, motorbike. I re- yeah totally i had to do a lot of stuff change a lot of stuff in myself to be in a position to buy it so you know two or three years ago um you know, the business side of the business was not great. I really wanted to pack it in. I'd had enough. Like, I was ready to... I'd You know, family business is trucking. You know, they lift containers off the wharf and we unload them in the yard. So I spoke to my cousin. I go, can I put a 40-foot container in the back of the yard? He goes, yeah, what for? I go, I just want to put all my tools in it. I've had enough. I'm going to go and work for someone else. He's like, yeah, you just can't access it very often. I'm like, that's cool. So I researched that. I priced him. I was about two weeks away from doing it. And then... That was three years ago. So I was kind of like, I'd had enough and like, you know, three or four years in business and it was just, you know, the pressure of it and everything and just, you know, always having to produce and, you know, wasn't kind of good on the business side of things. So, you know, um, had a lot of conversations with my partner Georgia and uh, she said, well, look, you've got to want to do it. You've got to really, you know, Set your goals on something and want to go after it. And she offered to help me with the, uh, I guess, the financial managerial part of it. So I kind of like relinquished that to her in a way, which was kind of a big deal at the time. And she structured it for me. She built that part of the business um, while I focused on making things and quoting jobs and getting the work in. And, you know, we rented a factory. You know, moved and rented it. you know, I was sharing in a factory with a mate, you know, keep overheads down. So it was a bigger step up in overheads and I think Georgia even paid for the first month's rent for me. Yeah. So there was that commitment and then I was like, I want this bike. Like my mates had some and I'm like, I want it. And then I set like a two year goal to get it. And then I think I think after the first year We'd got everything to a point where, you know, we're out of the red, we're in the black, and we're getting in front. And I said to Georgia, all I want for Christmas is you to tell me what day I can go and buy the bike. This is on, I remember it was on, that was that was my Christmas present, 2018. 20,
2: 2018?
1: Yeah. And then she goes, you can buy it on the 30th of the 3rd of March in ni- 2019, last year. So my two-year goal became a what, 15 months achievement. Mm. And I was kind of pissed at the time because I couldn't even get out and test ride. I was so busy, and then the Easter break came. It was a really funny sequence of events. Like, yeah. I was ready to go on the 30th, and I couldn't buy the bike for a couple of weeks. So that was a big, big deal for me, and that was um, a really, I felt a really good achievement for me personally and what I had to sort of change in me. That had nothing to do with skill set fabrication-wise and nothing to do with... I guess I had something to do with brand but um you know I had to change a lot of other stuff behind the scenes and a lot of people had seen to achieve it I had to make a lot of sacrifices too I had to work really hard so I did 7 days a week 14 16 hour days I didn't go to didn't go out didn't go and see friends you know I even knocked back being best man in a wedding overseas because I was just like this is my focus this is what I'm yeah. you know it's it was that sacrifice to to get to that point that, you know, kind of made it worthwhile in the end. Yeah. Do, you,
0: do you mind if I ask what was it in you that you had to change? What, what were those things that you identified? Um, for me, it was, like, my relationship with money.
1: You know, previous to that, I'd always been, like, a, a week-to-week person. Couldn't save, couldn't do anything. So That was one aspect I had to change. So having that structure and understanding how that worked and seeing it like i'd never you know i didn't grow up with computers as in writing and and stuff like i could email and stuff (laughs) that was about it and you know i couldn't write spreadsheets and things like that so i couldn't physically see what my business looked like on paper you know like receipts come in and out and bills come in and out and and things like that so for me it was educating about how to run a business properly you know so And that sort of started with the finances and understanding that, you know, more money's got to come in than less is going out to get ahead. So, um, which you kind of know, but how good, you know, obviously didn't know it well enough. So um, it was that part and that that was a struggle, you know, to get a grip of that while I was doing jobs that were pressure jobs, learning a new skill on the floor as well and, um, you know, all these new different things i was learning with my hands as well as trying to learn to run the business so it was it was pretty full on for a couple of years but yeah. it was i had to shut everything else out of my life that wasn't involved with it so and that was the sacrifice
0: that's that's so beautiful so so you know your partner gave you this gave you the ability and, and gave you the motivation and structured it for you mm. took on the financial responsibilities mm you made that switch in yourself and you freed yourself from say your spending habits or Mm. or your financial uh, habits Mm. and you stripped away so much uh so many other things in your life Mm. and that gave you the ultimate freedom to be creative and to focus on your business Mm. and um really propelled you
1: it takes discipline and that discipline is the key for that and it's also like I a, lot of people come to me and like, I want to do what you do and you're, you know, you know what you've achieved and stuff like that.
2: And
1: normally my first question back to them is, what do you really like to do? What's your favourite thing to do in the world? And that might be, I don't know, watch TV or it might be go hang out with the mates on the weekend or dirt bike riding or whatever it is. And I'm like, are you willing to just not do that for a whole year to get what you want in business? Because that's probably what it's going to take. Are you willing to sacrifice your f- the favourite thing that you want to do in the world that gives you pleasure? Mm. Are you willing to not do that for a whole year to get this bigger thing? That's what yeah. stops most people.
0: Yeah, and it's good that they stop because mm. that means that they have the self-awareness to mm. to know that, that it's not... Especially these days mm. where being in business is so cool. Mm. You know, I've got my own business. I do my own business. Mm. It's... Um, I think it's really important that people don't fall into the trap of, of getting into business just because they think it's a good idea. Or yeah, yeah, it man, may not yeah. be for
1: you. Like I didn't, yeah.
0: you know, I wanted to, I always just want to make things.
1: Mm. My, my classic line is I just want to build shit. Mm. The rest of it can just go away, but I've got to do the rest of it so I can. I've got to sacrifice me making stuff
2: mm.
0: a lot of the time so that I can get that time. Yeah, I recently heard Mike Tyson say it's it's all about doing the things that you hate doing every mm. single day. It's all yeah. about doing the things that you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what really enables you to do. It yeah. gives you the freedom to do the things that you actually want to do. Yeah. Um, that's, that's beautiful. I think um, all that is extremely inspiring for me as a young person sort of starting in my career. And, um, I, you know, I've had a lot of ups and downs and I think – in this compressed timeline of, you know, sort of being so young and being so impatient, uh, sort of everything seems like it's the end of the world. Hmm. Um, So that's that's very inspiring to hear from me that, you know, here's someone who at a stage in their life where most people sort of don't have the courage or the means or the ability to do anything or make a change, Hmm. you've made that change so quickly, obviously through hard work and dedication Hmm. and even at the brink of you giving it up, being able to make that change and so quickly um, be where you are now I think that's extremely interesting and very inspiring for me yeah thank you look
1: it's just it's not easy and you know Georgia will attest to that like I fall over a lot you Mm -hmm. know like but it could have been easy for her to help me out too but you've got to get up yourself like you're always going to fall over Mm -hmm. you're always going to make a mistake but until you own it, you know, and you get up by yourself yeah. and you're like, okay, that hurt, you know, falling over and, you know, I didn't make any money on that job or it cost me more than what I allowed for. But I've, I got up, I finished the job, I bought more material to do it, um, you know, and the client was happy in the end. That gives you a better feeling than... Yeah. It makes the losing the money go away. Like, it still hurts a bit, but it, it kind of makes it go away. You know, like how you makes it. If you make someone else's day, mm. you know that's such a good feeling. So, yeah. you know, I, I get to be able to do that with some of the things I make, and yeah, and that's that's the appealing part.
0: Yeah, one of the core values of my business is make less money. You know, don't mm. be don't be brought down by having to spend more money or having mm. to lose money on a job. You know. Mm. And it, it, like you said, it is really hard in that moment mm. when you have to make that purchasing decision, or when you have to, mm. when you, when you're tested and you consciously have to not cut that corner. Mm. Um, but it's that idea is also very freeing because it frees you from having to make those difficult decisions. Mm. Because by default, we do the right job and we make less mm. money. Yeah. Mm. So I really, um, I really resonate with with that
1: if you cut a corner you just made two corners so you got to navigate <laughs> two more corners up the road yeah. so it's that's hard that's the yeah. discipline with it too it's like i always try and and you test it all the time like mm. i might be doing a process and it's like an eight step process i'm like i'm kind of over this i reckon i could do it in seven mm. and you do it in 7 you you're like just needed that eight step i don't know why i did it now i have to undo like six yeah. steps to get back to the one i missed so yeah. yeah it happens all the time
0: so um where where is all this headed? So you you know locking yourself in a shed? where, where is that it? Is that until the next thing or you, you just not phase, you just wait for the next thing to come?
1: Yeah, the universe brings them now. Mm. It's pretty cool. Um there's a big goal, you know, we wanna we wanna move out out of the C B D. You know we're out in the suburbs, but we wanna move out, out mm. to land. Um, and create you know our world out there. So, I've kind of like I've always wanted to do it, but I've held off on doing it too because it's you know building a house from scratch and starting it's basically starting over again. Mm. So, you know, it took me a long time to allow myself to get excited about it, Mm. and now I am. So, it's um, you know, look, that's the big goal now. Looking forward to that commissioning, I'm looking forward to to writing a brief to an architect to Mm. um, design the house that I essentially going to build I didn't want to build it for a long time because I'd done it for 20 odd years and I was I guess um, physically and mentally wasn't up to it you Mm. know I built so many houses for so many other people that I know what a commitment it takes to do it Mm. it's going to be a year to two years full time for me to do it so I'm kind of like you know that's the big goal to do that, mm. and I want to do it. I don't like to set timelines to too many mm. things, but I do want to do it in the next, make the move in the next two or three years. Yeah, because um, I feel I'm just getting to a point where I'm not gonna, you know, yeah, physically keep it up. So um, I'm, you know, wary of that as well, but excited about it too. So
0: yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, dream project. Dream collaboration?
1: Yeah. um, I think I'm doing one of them Mm. at the moment.
0: Okay, you've been teasing this too much. Yeah,
1: yeah. I might
0: show you some photos later,
1: Charlie. Okay. um, But it's a legacy project. Like, we're both not leaving anything on the table. Like, this is the thing that this this project marks 25 years of someone else's work but it sets also sets the benchmark for the next 25 years so it's a collaboration it's significant that sounds Uh, hefty yeah Mm. and we're pulling out all the stops on it so I'm making 25 things but I'm actually making 28 because I've I've already made one of them, which was a a proof of concept, and I'm doing a working prototype, and then I'll do an artist proof. So I'll make three stages of the project, and we're at the we're in between the working project and the artist proof at the moment. And then once they're signed off, hopefully by the end of the year, I'll do the runner twenty-five, but. Yeah, like I even got a message before I came here and it was the detail that we did last weekend mm. where the client came in and we like, it was a total change of one aspect of it um, and he's just like, we need to chat about it. We just want to make sure we're doing the right decision with it so it's pretty well thought yeah. out. So, yeah. yeah. I think I think there's no one specific dream project. Mm. I think I'm at a point where clients like this come to me and i'll commit before i even know what it is because i want to work with them Mm. so you know and how they make me feel and the experience and and what they can bring to the table and how we can push each other to create something that's beyond what we ever thought we could and that's kind of what this is so they're the dream projects there's not i don't know what they are it's it's a feeling it's about working with the right people um yeah, it's trusting your gut with that too. Mm. So um, some things look good on the surface, but my gut might say it's not right. So I've learned to listen to that a lot more
0: in the last couple of years. So,
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and who should get in touch with you? Who do you want to hear from? What is that criteria? Oh, sorry, I don't want to be too cold in that description no yeah. no no i'm just filtering the answers
1: in my head so i don't want to sound too full on <laughs> <laughs> um well,
2: well maybe should, the right answer is
1: someone it's someone who's done some research on what i do and who i am a little bit you know whether that's just flicking through my instagram page mm. and someone who wants to bring something to me that maybe hasn't been done before is always a challenge or... Um, and that could be just working something out, not even making something. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, you know, don't... I guess the thing is, I didn't want to say what not to bring to me, but I will. What not to bring to me is like, here's something I've seen online, can you make it? Well, sure, I can make it. But someone else over there is already making it, so you get them to make it, you know. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not you know the the hints in the name custom custom industrial like i want to do custom stuff i want to do one of one or you know a limited run of something that we've developed ourselves you know that you know takes you know i want you to i want your passion if you're bringing something to me i want you to be passionate about it you know Mm. i want you to i want the client to be passionate about it so that I become passionate from there. How excited they are about it, and that's when we can sort of make some really
0: cool stuff. Yeah,
1: I guess that's the criteria.
0: You got to really want it. That's. Um, I think that's perfectly fair, hmm. because that because only under those circumstances are you able to give your best hmm. and put and put your best foot forward for for that job. I think that makes all the sense.
1: Yeah, you probably won't get my best if you bring something to me like I don't know you've got to do those jobs that's the commercial aspect of it you know there can be some interesting parts to it there's going to be challenging parts to it but they can be simple as well mm. and one of my f- sayings is simple ain't simple so mm. it's um,
0: yeah yeah I think on a on a personal note I want to I want to ask you so you know I asked you if, if you would come on this podcast and um, we've never met we have mutual f- friends. What what is it? Is it you see a young guy you wonder he's asking he wants you want to give him some value or what? Because you you know you you won't get you know if we're being realistic you won't really get anything out of it and you're not looking to get anything out of it per se. So what what part of that chemistry made you agree to come on the show?
1: I think the appeal is that you are genuine, Charlie. So. Um, you're honest mm. you didn't try and hide anything you didn't try and get me on here for ulterior motives you didn't you were just like hey i'm doing a podcast and mm. this is what it's about and i'm like that's pretty interesting you know to uh, me like and it's also yeah. you gotta be you've got to step into the unknown all the time mm. you know and you've got to remind you know i've got to remind myself to do that a lot as well so it's, yeah. you know for me personally it's like okay well you know, I've been interviewed before once or twice. Not a big part of my life. Um, you know, I listen to a p- few podcasts. I watch a few podcasts. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting medium now. And I'm like, well, why not? You know,
0: yeah. why not? It's a good way to spend a Friday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I just want to say for me, uh, as a as a young people as, as a young person entering the world, almost you know. Um, there's a lot of people who have given me opportunities and, and sort of given me um, time and yeah. advice, whatever, and um, that doesn't go unnoticed for me. It's it's very it's you know it's very important. It's something that I value very much. So on a personal note, I want to say thank you.
2: Well, pleasure. You're welcome.
0: And um, I think that's it all. That's all for today. Unless yeah. you wanted to say anything else.
1: No, I'm pretty good. I really enjoyed it. I want to thank you for asking me. I think it's um, really cool. I think what you're doing is awesome.
0: We'll do it again. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Pleasure.